I'm Tammy Vindand, your host for Executive with a Cause. Today on the show, I welcome Jean Giza, the CEO of Volunteering ACT. Today, we're going to chat about the good, bad, and hard things about running a charity. Welcome to the show, Jean. Thank you for having me, Tammy. I'm sorry we can't do this in studio today, but everybody knows that, you know, COVID is still around and it does cause some issues while we're um, sometimes remote has to to be the case. Yeah, and look, I think it's reflective of the brave new world we live in. So, look, these are the things we have to do. The great thing is this is the era of change, and we are all very good at change right now. Um, for for people that are not familiar with volunteering ACT, can you please tell us more about the organization? Of course. So Volunteering ACT, we're the peak body for both volunteering and community information in what's called the Canberra region. So that's not geographically restricted to just the ACT. It also includes a much broader region that goes all the way up um, to the Snowies, includes all of the coastal region of of New South Wales, um, Goulburn up towards Sydney Way um, and everything in between. So geographically quite a large region. And so we undertake peak body and, and uh, peak body activities in that region, as well as being a service provider. Um, and we have service provision across a range of areas, um, namely for people who are experiencing either disadvantage or isolation or both, um, people who are living with a disability or people who need support for mental wellness. So everything that we do in a nutshell is around fostering quality of life and is about participation and connection. So it all comes back to making sure people are able to engage with their communities in whatever way is meaningful for them. I do want to go back to um, the fact that you're both a peak body and a service provider because I do think that's a bit unusual in the sector. But before I do that, what what was the first job, I suppose, that you had in the not-for-profit sector? Because I understand you've been in the community sector for a while. Mm, I have been. Um, I started with Carers ACT, um, and Carers is uh, part of a national network of caring organisations supporting family carers, so supporting people who are looking after a family member or a friend um, who needs who needs support in their lives. And I was driven to that very much by my own personal situation. So I was at university. I, my life was definitely going in a very different direction. And um, I had a personal experience of being a young carer for my dad. And I think it was it was one of those uh, really key moments in my life where I thought, actually, I think my my passion and my skills are better placed in helping others who are navigating a really difficult time in their lives. And I was with Carers ACT for many years and was given amazing opportunities to grow and to learn. And um, my time was up. You know, you get to the point in a job where you've done all you can do. And I had climbed the ladder and I was I was just so thankful and grateful to that organisation for everything that they had done to set me up really well. And I had had interaction with staff members from volunteering ACT in my work with carers. And there was just a real, it was just, there was chemistry there. There was just an attraction to wanting to um, spread my wings and try something new. So um, when a role came up with volunteering ACT, it was pretty easy for me to say, I think it's time. I think that's a sign if you believe in those sort of things. And that was my time to to move across. And I've been with volunteering ACT since then. Mm. Were you in the CEO role originally? No, no, I wasn't. So when I started with uh, volunteering ACT, I came in to undertake um, more general management type work. Um, The organisation had in the years prior to that um, undergone a merge. Um, So there had been a merge between uh, volunteering ACT and um, the Citizens Advice Bureau, which had become Contact Canberra. And so that merger had happened and the organisation at that time was volunteering and contact ACT, so a bit of a mouthful, um, but um, they were ironing out all of the all of the things that happened in an organisation post-merger, um, which of course takes a number of years really just to isolate all of the things that need to be done and to do them really well. And so I came in at that point um, and then uh, became the deputy CEO. Um, and then when our previous CEO, Vicky Darling, left, I had the opportunity to apply for the CEO position and was and um, and was successful in that. It, it's really interesting that you decided to go from the deputy CEO to the CEO role, because I actually meet a lot of deputy CEOs that don't want that role. They're happy to act in that, but they don't actually want the external 
responsibilities for communications, for fundraising, right. um, yeah. for government relationships. You know, they're more happy with the operational side. So for you, what was that transition like for you to go from internally focused to more externally focused? I was really fortunate in that I had had a lot of exposure to the CEO role. So the previous CEO, Vicky Darling, who is just one of the most remarkable mentors, she had guided me through that process. And so I had lots of interaction. I'd had lots of visibility. Um, I'd had lots of opportunity to, to stretch and to try out different parts of the CEO role. So for me, the transition was far less difficult, I think, than for others because I had had that luxury of having so much exposure to it over time. Um, but through that exposure, I just sensed that it was the right thing and that I was ready. And you have to be ready for a CEO position. Um, but I suppose there's never a good time. And it was just, uh, it was that Vicky was leaving and the opportunity was there. And I thought, well, if I don't do it now and I don't apply and I don't put my hat in the ring, I never might. So, um, so it was, it just happened really naturally, really. It's really impressive because there are different skill sets and, for you to transition like that, I, like I could think on on at least one hand right now, a number of deputy CEOs that are acting in CEO roles just in our community locally, and yet they don't want the role because they would prefer yeah. to be focused internally. W were there any other um, resources that you had or training opportunities you had to help you in that transition? Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. And look, the timing of me moving into the CEO role was potentially appalling in that we were in the middle of lockdowns, it was COVID time, um, it was an extremely difficult time to be a CEO of any not-for-profit organisation. So um, that, that was, there was a bit of being in the deep end. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that you need to be in the deep end and learn how to swim. And that's where you work out whether swimming's for you or whether you need to try a different career. And so um, that that was okay. Um, but the board invested in me heavily. Um, and part of that was doing the um, company directors course. Um, so I did that through the Australian Institute of Company Directors, um, sort of as I was transitioning in, which was an enormous undertaking, but I think really sets you up so well in terms of testing your governance knowledge um, and, and seeing whether or not you can actually walk the walk at mm. the other end. So it was a really powerful learning experience. Um, but most of my training is, of course, on the job. So most of it had been through navigating really difficult projects and programs and difficult times and you know you need to have lived through um, a couple of those you know those really key difficult career points to know whether to know whether you want to do that on an ongoing basis so I think a lot of it had been me having been in the deep end in other spaces in my career and saying well you survived that and that's what you learned and that's what you can carry through to your next role. I think there's some great learnings from that. Now that you're a CEO, that is actually, we, we talked about this earlier and you said I could I could share that you're about to go on maternity leave. Now you're about to transition to have an interim CEO for at least some period of time and you're looking for that individual right now. First of all, what, what kind of person are you looking for to play that role in the organization? And then two, what do you need to do in your mind to, to ensure they have a good transition while you're away? That's an excellent question. I, I mean, the 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 benefit I've had is, of course, I've known I'm I was pregnant long before the world knew, so I had already started that preparatory work. So, um, when you're taking any period of leave, whether that be maternity leave or long service leave or a time away, uh, you need to as as someone senior in an organisation, you need to make sure what I say is you know having all your ducks in a row. And so, some of that had been. Um, a longer term succession planning piece with other members of the existing team, giving them opportunities if they were interested in opportunities to take on extra duties and to um, to get them prepared for a time where um, one person may not be there and, and organisations have to keep running, of course. Um, in terms of who we're looking for as an interim person, it, it is a bit sticky, I suppose, because they're coming in for a period of time as the deputy and then they will step up while I'm away for a, a few months and then step 
back into the deputy CEO role. So I suppose we're looking for somebody that's comfortable with that fluidity because it is really important that they're able to be the deputy and work with me and we're, we'll be a really wonderful team. And then for them to step up and then step back will actually be, I think, it will be really important to find somebody that has comfort in doing that. Um, but we're primarily looking for somebody who who is who is values aligned um, mm-hmm. because you can't have anybody working in these spaces who doesn't have a connection to what you're doing and why you're getting out of bed in the morning. And so with the organisation spending so much um, of its effort in supporting people who are experiencing barriers in our community, we need to make sure we've got somebody who who fundamentally is on board with the work that we're trying to do and, and, and with our mission. So um for me, and, and this goes across all of the recruitment that we that we do, not just related to this particular role, but I always am looking for people who have that values alignment, who have that aptitude. It's not necessarily about on paper what skills and experience you've had. It's about who you are as a person and and how well you'll fit in with the team, because that does need to happen, you know, needs to happen relatively quickly. So um there are a few things we're keeping an eye out for. And of course, um the board and myself are keeping a close eye on somebody potentially that's put out some fires because, you know, Murphy's Law says the organisation's travelling really well and is in a really strong position and there's going to be a fire at some point. So we need somebody that's really confident and capable in dealing with those difficult situations because inevitably they will they will come up. Mm. Canberra's such a small market though. You know, we have in this city about, what, 500,000 people, maybe bigger since the, the last census has come out. Do you see it even possible for someone to fulfill, maybe we'll start with the interim CEO role, not even the deputy yet, interim CEO role remotely? Is that even a reality? It's it's something we've certainly thought about quite a bit. And we are living in a changed workplace environment. So where people can be in Canberra and can be two kilometres away from our office but are working from home for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have some of our senior leadership team who are in other parts of Australia. And the reason that we have done that is because I place a really high value on those people. Um, And when they rang me to say, hey, Jean, I'm I'm thinking of of moving my family closer to to other members of my family um, or for whatever reason that is for them, I've said, okay, well, we need to make this work because my value of you needs to be higher than that natural instinct which says this will not work. So mm. you really have to put so much more effort into making those scenarios work. And look, some of them won't, um, but for the most part we've been able to navigate that because I've had really good trusted relationships with those people. In terms of the CEO position, um, I, I think it is a little bit more difficult to undertake that remotely because some of it is about being on the ground in Canberra and understanding the nuances of the Canberra environment. Mm-hmm. So some of that is definitely about being in touch with who are the providers and having a relationship with them and understanding what the needs of, of the community actually are. Um, and some of it, it frankly, is about being able to say to somebody, can we go and have a coffee and have a chat about things? And that's, you know, we, we all know that that's how a lot of things get sorted out mm-hmm. um, is not by having a meeting over Zoom or by um, a, a teleconference. It's it's about saying, hey, we've actually got this sticky problem and I'd love to buy you a cup of coffee and can we talk about this? So I think there is a value in that as well. So for a CEO, having them located in the city where the offices are um, is sometimes is sometimes a bit of a deal breaker. So I think we are really looking ideally for somebody who is place-based. Yeah. It is a topical conversation though, isn't it? Because so many roles now are um, able to be hybrid. Then you have to wonder, well, what about the CEO, you know? Yeah. Now you guys do have a unique mission though. Being a peak body is one thing, which seems to be more conducive to that hybrid model, but also being a service delivery arm that one is something that is a lot harder to do in the not-for-profit space in particular. Tell us how you balance that because it's it's not a common business model for not-for-profits to do both. 
Mm, it is it is unusual and um, a lot of it for us has come about because of that merger that happened between two organisations coming together and our mission being blended in that way. So there's there's a there's a history of us um, undertaking both activities. In my view, I think the two are really complementary. Um, in that, when you undertake peak body work, you're advocating on behalf of your members to government about ways that things can be done better and you're collaborating with government on a range of different projects and you're informing a range of different pieces of work the service delivery arm gives you real power in saying well actually we've tested and trialed this and this doesn't work and so for us where where we have that that benefit of being able to say well, we did that and, you know, this this didn't work and here's why when we evaluated that particular model. And so we've never found it a real tension, I don't think. We just, we, we have different people and different resources allocated to those different parts of our business, but you can never really truly separate them because advocacy and policy needs to reflect what's happening um, and service delivery needs to reflect the policy and advocacy of the day if you, if you want to be sustainable so we've we've never clearly delineated them but that's i think that's why things work so well um and so you know even this morning there's a review of the disability strategy underway and so our policy and advocacy team have taken the time to meet with participants from our inclusive programs to undertake a, a co-design process of a response um with them um, back to government about what that strategy can look like. So it, it, for us, there's really lovely synergy between those two parts of the business, but we acknowledge that it is unusual. So we, it does place us in a slightly different, um, we're in a slightly different ballgame to others. I did not recognize the strengths of that, though, until you just explained it. There's a, oftentimes conflict between the peak bodies and the delivery arms in the states and territories. And and you've eliminated that by being a provider as well, because you can understand what it's like to be in their boots. It's not often the case, though. You often see that conflict between those um, those different needs and 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 also the services they provide to each other or to a, a in, end user. So I think that's a real benefit. I'm also thinking there's got to be a benefit from a funding perspective, because you're not reliant the same way as other peak bodies on just the membership. That's right. That's right. And so uh, we have about 200 members um, currently and then they're organisations who are involving volunteers. So that won't come as a surprise. Um, and we, of course, in our representation, we also represent volunteers themselves. So people who are out there doing amazing work in our community. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so so there is um, there is for us a, a need to to keep an eye on all things. And I suppose uh, to, back to your earlier point, Tammy, there there could be some peak bodies for whom undertaking service delivery would be inappropriate. And I think it depends on what the peak body is actually there to do. Um, whereas for us, volunteering is in some ways a really non-threatening conversation. Um, and although we do have to provide significant advocacy at times back to government and on behalf of our members and, and there's lots of movement and traction. Um, it, it is in some ways an easier conversation because what our advocacy um, sits upon is the premise that volunteering makes the community run. And so without volunteers and once you remove them and you don't resource them properly, communities don't function the way that they currently do and as effectively as they currently do. And because volunteering covers this broad spectrum of our community as well. So we often think stereotypically of volunteering as being something that is just about uh, people living with a disability or, you know, people working and um, supporting a soup kitchen, just as, just as a few examples. Um, but volunteering is, is, is something that underpins whole of government and whole of community. And so, it is a conversation you can have, I think, a little easier than potentially um, some other peak bodies' um, advocacy positions. All good points. Voluntary in particular, I think, is one of the hardest parts about being a not-for-profit is having this, this dependency on a group of people that are not being paid a monetary reward and therefore their compensation is not visible 
each volunteer is get, expecting and getting something else out of that volunteer experience. And it's not it's not always easy to quantify mm. and therefore harder to manage, right? So some of the work that you guys are doing in that volunteering space, is that specifically only for the local territory? And then in the disability space, is that funding from the National Disability Scheme? So we we are funded to deliver services um, in the Canberra region. Uh, that funding comes through a variety of sources, so both through local government funding and federal funding, and we get some donations and other small grant funding and some philanthropy and so on. Um, but we are just funded to provide services in the ACT um, and the region, and we work with the other state and territory volunteering peak bodies. Um, so there are lots of ways in which we're doing the same thing, but New South Wales are doing it in New South Wales and we're doing it in the ACT and there's really lovely partnerships between us, but we are, we sort of, we stick to our own patch, if you mm. like. Um, but we do actively partner with our state and territory counterparts to deliver upon projects and programs. So one of those is our inclusive volunteering program, which we've been running in Canberra for, for a long time. And we had the opportunity a couple of years ago to expand that to other regions in Australia. And so Tasmania and New South Wales, the volunteering peak bodies in those two states, both said, actually, Jean, we're really interested in, in doing this and in, in, and in trialling this in our own regions. So um, they're subcontractors of ours. So that's an interesting structure. Um, but in other spaces where, um, where you have um, peak funding um, through the Department of Social Services, so federal funding, each state and territory receives funding to do similar things um, in each state. And, um, and that's a different structure in terms of how the governance works as well. So it depends. Um, and in our community information space, that is certainly something that is quite, uh, I suppose, specific to the ACT, because in other states and territories, community information is delivered through a range of different avenues. In the ACT, it's the local government that has said, we place a priority on making sure that people are connected with events and programs and services that make their lives more meaningful and and so that people have access so it's um it's a specific service that that we run um and we love um but in other states and territories it could be council-led or would have a different structure so it depends on the funding um on the funding and where it comes from and what the purpose of it is but we do tend to stick to our own patch Tell us more about the subcontracts that you have with Tassie and what was the other state or territory? New South Wales. New South Wales, the, the subcontracting relationship you have with them. Yeah, so look, it's just the nature of that particular program in that um, because we had had experience delivering that program over a couple of years, we were the head contractor. So we were the ones that said, this is what we want to do. And so the money flows from um, the um, from the Department of Social Services via what used to be the NDIA funding, so the National Disability Insurance Agency funding, um, and, and now has moved to a different department, which, which is fine, um, of course. Um, and so we have the agreement with the federal department and we subcontract those two states. In saying that, it's really important to us, really important that they're not subcontractors. So whilst on paper and the paperwork says you are subcontracting to these two organisations, these are two partners that we work with day in, day out on a range of other programs and services to support the volunteering ecosystem in this country. They're also people we get along with really well and we have really deep foundational relationships with. So for us, it's not a subcontracting relationship. Yes, we do all the reporting and we spill out the money and we have to keep an eye on the KPIs. But at the end of the day, we've set that system and that structure up uh, in terms of how we work together to be three equal parties coming to the table and working out how we can deliver that service better. And just because we've been delivering that service in the ACT for many years and we have evaluated it and trialled different things and really got a good sense of what works in the ACT, we never came to the, to the table with the arrogance that that would be easily duplicated and replicated in those other two jurisdictions. And, of course, Tasmania has its own discrete, very different set of 
um, of needs and barriers that exist, and as does New South Wales, by and large, because of their geography. So, um, so we knew that we have a model that works really well, but we're going to have to work really closely with you and collaborate with you to make sure that when we do that co-design piece to um, make that happen in two other states, that we have to be ready that what we have done over a course of years may well not. Um, and so um, it's just the beauty of really good relationships that has made that possible really without the three states having good relationships and being able to pick up the phone with each other and say, oh, we're not sure this is good and can I just have a quick chat with you about this? We wouldn't be in the successful position we are now with that program. I, I think it's interesting because a lot of people would say, wait, small little ACT is subcontracting to New South Wales. People who are outside of Australia may not realize that, that New South Wales is the state where Sydney is based and significantly larger than Tasmania and ACT for population-wise. So, But people also forget that because of the way that the ACT, our Australian capital territories, is, is geographically such a small um, uh, location, that it's a great pilot place. Oh, for, for testing ideas. Absolutely. And look, you know, um, all views of, uh, of the NDIS aside, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, put aside to one moment, there is a reason that we were the first whole of jurisdiction that was trialled um, with that scheme. And that's because our discrete jurisdiction and the strong relationships that we have in, in Canberra enabled us to be the best test case for whether that would work even at that level before it was scaled up into regions that um, have um, both rural and remote areas and 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 all of the the barriers that come with that so that was a deliberate thing and I always say if things can't happen in Canberra if they can't work in Canberra they're very unlikely to work when they're scaled up from there um, it's an interesting point you make about uh, about New South Wales, and I think it's a testament to the relationships that we have with our state and territory counterparts, where they said, well, you've been doing it for years, so of course it makes sense for you to lead and drive it. Um, but we, we, you know, we, we did everything we could just to set that up in a way that would give them access to everything we had ever done, all the evaluation, all of the program management, all of the tools, all of the resources, and we, we wanted to see whether it could work in um, in New South Wales, and it has. It's been highly effective in both of those jurisdictions, but with huge modifications that have been needed over the course of the last couple of years to fine-tune and to go back and say, okay, well, that worked here, but it's not working here, and let's let's weigh and um, work out a way for that to happen together. But I think, um, I think that's where there is strength in letting your ego go at the door, um, and so for us, it was saying, well, we know that just because it works here doesn't mean it's going to work everywhere else. But for uh, for my counterpart in New South Wales, Gemma, who is an outstanding woman, her saying, well, you guys have done it, so we're okay with that. And also being able to say between us, well, you're really good at this bit and you're really good at this bit and you're really good at this bit. So if we put that power together collectively, imagine what we can pull off mm. and where we've done that, it's just it's just worked to to have better outcomes for the community. So I think I think there is something that is that is really apparent in leaving ego at the door and and being genuine about that. So it doesn't happen all of the time. Of course, you go into lots of room and you feel the ego and you feel the power plays happening. Um, and I'm I'm personally a bit exhausted by that because I just don't <laughs> have an interest in that. I think there is real power in saying okay, well, yeah, how, how can we make this work together? And some of the most successful, the, the things I'm most proud of in my career have been where I've been able to be in a room of people and we've been able to have a really open conversation about what each of our strengths are and what each of our weaknesses are mm -hmm. and work out how we can pull everything together. Um, because at the end of the day, in our sector, we are getting out of bed to make lives better for other people. And as soon as you take your eye off that prize, it's all over. Um, and you have to be able to um, to take some pretty big risks um, to do that. And you also have to be able to at times say, no, this doesn't feel right. Even, even if it's going to bring in lots of money, even if it's going to bring in some pretty powerful partnerships, there are times where you have to say, it actually isn't worth it because what it would do if we carried on with this particular project is undermine our fundamental reason for being at work. 
I love that example about collaboration. I had Hannah and Drevsky from Roundabout Canberra, and I know you're on their board as well, in here for an interview not too long ago. And, and she talked about how they started up with all these best practices from all the other states and territory learnings that allowed them, in my mind, to become a best practice small charity very, very quickly. But you don't see that very often. You, see, you do see a lot of conflict. I'm curious, how do you guys work with Volunteering Australia? Mm. So we're not federated, but we are a foundation member of them. So all of the states and territories are, are, are a member of Volunteering Australia. We have a pretty outstanding relationship. They're based in Canberra. So um, we actually share office space with them at the moment, which is really nice because I can tap on their door and ask them what their what their position is um, when there's a piece of national policy. They can tap on my door and say, actually, we're interested in you're doing that on the ground. So what does that actually mean? And how does that look for you? And how is the ACT position different from the federal position? Um, but we work um, we work really well with them. They um, they run a national policy group and they run the national Marcoms group and a range of other of other national groups as well, where we bring together the experts in each of our states to have conversations about um, joint submissions, about ways that we can work together and cut down um, on, you know, on all of us duplicating the same amount of effort. So um, like the states and territories work so well together and beautifully together, Volunteering Australia is absolutely part of that equation. Um, and the CEOs meet frequently. So the CEOs of each state and territory and the CEO of Volunteering Australia meet frequently um, to share ideas and to um, share what we're what we're having issues with in our own organisations um, as a mechanism to just to be better and to 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 really improve the way that we're all we all work in our own jurisdictions um, again because that's where it has power as a collective. It's important, I think, for even though you're not a federated organization, which typically means there's some sort of monetary or financial relationship. It sounds like you guys have a great relationship and and have a division of duties that makes sense. I, I'm also curious about the fact that we are hoping we're almost done with COVID, although we know it's still largely out there. How is volunteering um, going to be impacted the next, you know, 12 to three, 12 months to three years? Yeah, so... COVID has had a significant impact upon volunteering nationally. Um, that won't come as any surprise. And it's driven by a number of factors. One of them is that when, when COVID hit, it was it was unknown for all of us. So, you know, everybody's operating in a climate of complete instability and instability in their workplaces, but also in their home lives. And I think that's where the most significant change happened is that people in our sector are used to dealing with uh, crisis and they're used to dealing with things that need to, um, that we need to stand up and address and be able to, to formulate concepts of how to make things better. But COVID was so unusual because it also impacted every single person who was at home with family, without family, isolation, not having access to all of those markers of well-being. So it impacted your workforce, but it also impacted the people you're there to support. And so we saw a significant decline in volunteering when COVID um, hit Canberra and, and the broader country. And, um, and so 70% of organisations said this is too hard and, and they closed their doors for volunteering at that time which is significant. That's a significant number of people when volunteers make up around 80% of the sector workforce in terms of headcount. So um, I don't need to, I, I, I hope you don't make me get out a calculator to work out what those <laughs> look like, but we're talking, we're talking huge numbers of people all stood down. And then you also had volunteering programs where volunteers were still encouraged to come, but people themselves either made the decision um, and older Australians were being given potentially amb ambiguous advice about whether or not to turn up and mm -hmm. to leave the house. You had young people um, who were also in, you know, in casualisation of employment and were really struggling with actually paying their bills and getting food on the table. And then, of course, we know, and these are broader generalisations, but I think there's some merit in talking about them. Um, we also know that women were much 
um, more impacted by um, by COVID in that they had to take on more responsibilities at home for caring and looking after children. And so it was it was women by and large who took leave at leave of absence from work and and, and had those domestic um, and household duties that they had to um, that they had to cater to as well as caring responsibilities. So when you take away um, older Australians who make up a huge portion of your volunteer pool, you take away younger Australians who make up a huge portion of your, your pool, and then you take away women who by and large volunteer more than men, you're in an even bigger predicament. So um, because COVID was so, we were so unsure about how it was going to play out over time, by the time we sort of, we were out of one lockdown in Canberra and we were, you know, back to a new normal, it took an, an enormous amount of effort to encourage organisations and to support organisations. And they needed a lot of support because things were really tough to get volunteers back to work. And then we almost took two steps backwards when we went into the next lockdown. And so volunteering recovery is a huge issue. And so it is it is almost at the top of our, our policy and advocacy list is we need to get people back into volunteering because the sector is experiencing the highest demand that they ever have for services and supports. And at the same time, the largest portion of your workforce has been depleted. So how do we get that back, back to normal? And the census that some of the initial census results that have been released show absolutely that that is true. Um, so everything that we um, that we um, new through research done by Volunteering Australia and other parties has just been strengthened by the census results in terms of people moving away from volunteering. But the other really interesting thing that had started before COVID and was accelerated by COVID was a real shift to informal volunteering. So when I talk about formal volunteering, I talk about volunteering that has a structure that is with an organisation that um, is managed and supervised by a volunteer manager or somebody else who's keeping things ticking along um, and you have a position description. It's really clear when you're coming in and out and what you're doing. Informal volunteering had already been on the rise and COVID has, um, has made that more likely where people are looking in the first instance for more flexibility in their volunteering opportunities. So they want to be able to stand up on a Saturday morning and say, actually, I've got a few hours up my sleeve, what can I do? But also people um, becoming, um, because of COVID and because of other movements in, in how society's moving together, um, people standing up and saying, well, I'm going to support my local community here. So people are volunteering informally in settings more and more than they ever were that are connected to their communities, whether that be their school or their neighbourhood or their street or um, their, you know, their child's soccer team and so on and so forth. So we're seeing a huge shift towards informal volunteering. So um, it's really understanding why that's happening and what the drivers are. And then for us as peak bodies, to not just say, well, that's going to happen and that's all well and good. It's actually about us saying, well, that's the trend and that's the pattern. Why are people doing that? And what is our role as the peak bodies to assist and support with the infrastructure that they need to do that in a safe and supported way? Because, um, you know, it does need to be safe and supported and there are rules that have to, you know, there are things that have to be done to enable volunteering to be done properly. Um, and so the rise of informal volunteering is brilliant because it means people are looking for different ways to give back to their communities. But we need to make sure that we're providing that infrastructure to make sure that it's done um, in the best way to support those volunteers. And it's incredibly interesting to, to think about it that way. And when you first started talking about informal volunteering, I was first thinking about how neighbours are helping neighbours. Yeah. Right. Just, you know, somebody has COVID, they can't get out of their apartment, just dropping off groceries, just something as easy as that. But from a workforce perspective, you just said 80% of the workforce is actually volunteers in this sector. And I completely agree with that from my own experience. But what would be really difficult to do is to manage it. So yeah. what kind of tips do you have for organizations that are in this predicament where they have people that want to give a couple hours, but they don't want to commit to a weekly time and but yet still need some level of training induction possibly uniform how do you do that yeah and I think it boils down really to the fact that there are some organizations for whom a formal structure needs to exist and for whom 
um, extensive training and support needs to exist. And the classic scenario I always use are lifeline volunteers. Mm -hmm. Somebody who is picking up that phone on a crisis mental health line absolutely needs to have a formal structure in place, both to protect the caller and to protect the volunteer. So lifeline in that instance, that particular role is unlikely to be as fluid as say roundabout and roundabout are an excellent example of where they've been able to say, well, people can actually drop in and we'll be able to get them to sign the, you know, the sort of the minimum requirements, do the minimum induction that we need to for the space, um, and then they can volunteer with us. And some of that is driven, of course, um, around the fact that the, the space operates really effectively and they've got amazing people in there to make that happen, but also because potentially the risks are lower. You know, they're mm-hmm. not having client interaction, they're not having a lot of things that immediately escalate the need for a different risk profile. But for organisations that um, are able to, and um, there are there will always be exceptions to that, um, we would always encourage them just to make contact with us because that's what that's our bread and butter. That's what we're here for. So we love talking to organisations, big and small and everything in between, um, about how they can adapt what they're doing um, to be more flexible. And so, you know, you, you, I suppose your most generic example of that is can you create an at-home volunteer role? You know, can someone do your social media on a Saturday afternoon? Absolutely. And those examples are, are working really effectively across a whole range of organisations. But it's being able to adapt the way that you think about your volunteers and the way that you think about your volunteering programs and evolving that. And organisations need to respond to the changing environment. Otherwise, they're not going to have volunteers who are, who are turning up. But there is just a big spectrum of different roles and whether or not they can be made flexible. So it's very arrogant for me to sit here and say, well, all of them can be flexible and you can just do that. In in many cases, it just won't be possible. Um, and and so maybe, maybe that's why um, some volunteers are looking for a different role with a different organisation. And that's okay, you know. We always... Um, you know, I think we always think that the only volunteers that we really want are ones that are going to turn up every Wednesday between one and five o'clock for five years, and they're going to be the ones that have the most impact. Well, they're going to have a significant impact upon your organisation. But um, a volunteer that turns up on a Saturday morning and helps you out with one particular project that has just been on the back burner for four years and cleans it up and gets it moving will also have a significant impact. So um, I think people are looking for something different. And I think people um, through COVID and now, as you said, hopefully on the other side of COVID, we people are looking very clearly at the priorities that they have in their lives and their time is more precious than it ever has been. And so the challenge for us as the peak and for volunteering involving organisations is to sell the sizzle. So, um, and to do that, we have to be able to, to to match what what people are telling us that they want um and you hit the nail on the head right before tammy where you said difficult to manage you actually need to put more effort into managing and supporting volunteers than you do in some cases your paid workforce because with your paid workforce and i'm not saying you should devalue your paid workforce or stop recognizing them and doing all of those good things but they are paid and there is an employment relationship um and so uh, it, it is in some ways easier to get movement and traction and and um but with volunteers it's i think it's working with the individual and saying with saying to them loudly and proudly what do you want from us and for some of our volunteers i know it's well i just want i just want someone to say thank you when i leave my shift mm-hmm. and so we say to the team you know make sure every time a volunteer leaves the shift that you ask them how their how their shift was whether they have anything they want to feedback and thank them and off they go and for others, it will be, well, this um, volunteering role is a pathway to retirement or it's a pathway to employment or it's a way that I can get exposure to A, B, C or D. And it's about being creative in saying, okay, well, that's interesting. So what you're telling me then is that you are, this is this is a really important 
isolation mechanism for you. So you want to have connection with other people. So are you actually in the right volunteering role to have lots of connection with other people? Or if you're on a pathway to employment, what other roles could we create in our organisation that actually give you the exposure to a different side of the business that will give you a pathway to employment? And we shouldn't be encouraging people just to say on their resume, I'm just a volunteer and volunteering experience goes right down to the bottom of their resume. Shouldn't it be right up the top? Because what it demonstrates to a potential employer is that you've chosen to give your time for free, willingly to an organization that matches your values and you've shown up and you've done all this amazing work. In some ways, we should be encouraging people to put it right at the top because it shows it shows to potential employers that you've got this amazing person who was actually so dedicated to get into a job with your organisation that they did it for a period of time unpaid and really had to learn it from the ground up. That, I mean, that to me, whenever I see a resume and it's got all this volunteering experience, I think, great, you know, bring them in, you know, because they're, they have really shown alignment with wanting to be there. I mean, it's not just a, I'm applying for every job in the world. They've clearly shown and demonstrated that. Uh, that's great advice about bringing that up it, because it is a real job. I mean, it, it actually takes time, actually more initiative to most jobs that have a real role description. And the other thing is that when I was in a CEO role is that the number of time we actually hired a volunteer to fill a paid role because that individual kept showing up. So if, I, you know, I actually have uh, Keith Cantley from... Cantley Recruitment, he's going to be one of our guests shortly. And I often get asked this question about how do you change sectors? How do you go from someone like me who went into IT and then into the not-for-profit space and then kind of a, a merger between the two now? How do you do that? And the first thing I always said to them was volunteer. Find an organization you're passionate about and get involved and learn about the sector, understand what they do on a day-to-day -day basis on an operational level. And just start with that. And some people just miss that completely. They think they want to just go ahead and apply for a CEO role. It's, it's amazing to me. Yeah, absolutely. And we, um, you know, we have a policy of interviewing any volunteer that applies for any of our jobs, regardless of what it is, we have a policy of interviewing them. Um, and um, there was a point, um, and I'm just trying to do the numbers in my head at the moment, but there was a point last year, late last year, where half of our workforce had been, our paid workforce, had been volunteers with us. Yeah. And so we had seen them and we had, um, and we weren't testing them. That wasn't what it was about. We didn't take them on as volunteers um, in the hope that, um, that, you know, that we would be able to, to test them out, you know, get a bit of free service from them. No, it wasn't that at all. It was that they came on with the organisation as genuine volunteers and then an employment opportunity came up and, why wouldn't they have won on the day? You know, why? What? What? what there was nothing holding us back, and it was the. And so I think that's where you have this amazing pool of talent um, ready to go, and so many people are looking for employment opportunities. And if you've got someone that's volunteered with you for a couple of years, or even for a short period of time, you've half the battle is won because you know that they want to be with your organisation. Mm. Uh, it's a really powerful it's a really powerful thing when they shift from being a volunteer to an employee um, and they're always really grateful and oh my thank you for giving me this opportunity no 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 thank you for for picking us out of a large pool of other organizations doing amazing work and turning up and, and driving these projects and of course it was going to be you you know there's there mm. was there, in so many cases there were no there was no question about it yeah well, I'm conscious of time, Jane. This has been a great conversation. I think there's been so many learns from, from this. If somebody wants to volunteer just generically, so we know that we have an international audience here, what is the best way for them to go about doing that? Absolutely. So, um, look, if people are based in Australia, um, they should go to the website of their local state and territory peak body. So um, they're, you know, volunteering Queensland, volunteering Western Australia and so on. Um, and we are the matchmakers. So um, so people list their roles like they do on job um, websites. They list their volunteer roles with us and um, you can either self-navigate um, and or there are organisations in different regions of Australia where 
um, where you can be guided through to a role and have a bit more support. Um, so that's the that's the easiest way. Internationally, um, the same sort of structures exist. So it's always better to um, to connect with the volunteering peak that's in your region and ask them for advice, and um, and keep an eye out um, for. Um, you know, other opportunities like our inclusive volunteering program, which is, of course, set up for people um, who are living with a mental health condition or, or living with a disability, um, because it's those programs that, um, you know, if you're experiencing a barrier that we want to, we want to talk to you and we want to make sure that that um, that you're supported into a role as well. So sometimes people want to self-service and sometimes people want a bit more um, support in finding the right role, but either way, um, the the sector is certainly crying out for for help, um, and would be so grateful for for any support that people can lend. Jean, thank you so much for the work that you do. You and your team, with the number of volunteers, like you said, eighty percent of the workforce in this sector is volunteers, and obviously, it takes a lot of work to manage these um, individuals that have different needs when they come into these organizations, having a peak body like yours that helps not only provide best practice, but also provides government um, advocacy work is crucial to making that work. So thank you for the work that you and your team do every day. Um, and, and, and also thank you to, to all the volunteers that you work with because we all know that government and private industry does not service these types of um provisions of services to the community as well are as effective or as cheaply as a not-for-profit does. So it, it is absolutely crucial to have more volunteers out there helping, whether they're interested in social services, environment, um, animals, all these organizations need help and um, volunteering ACT certainly helps, provides more volunteers for them as well. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Tammy. Hi, this is Tammy again. When I'm not doing podcasts, I'm helping not-for-profits with IT decisions. The question for this week's IT in Plain English segment came from a friend. It is, how do I create a digital strategy for my organization? Digital strategies or digital transformations have been quite the buzzword lately in not-for-profits. And the reality is that the process for developing them is quite complicated. And as a result, I can't fully answer that question in this segment. So let's just start with your first step, which is, first, become really clear about your objectives for the strategy. For digital strategies, I usually divide these objectives into four focus areas around the customer, operations, innovation, and data. So if your strategy is, say, for an example, focused on the customer, this may be a donor, member, or client, are we trying to improve their user experience through digital channels? Or are we trying to increase revenue? Or is the objective to increase the number of people you support with your mission? Now, if the focus is on operations, are you trying to reduce cost? Perhaps you're trying to reduce manual processes or even improve your employee and volunteer experience. In reality, you may have a few of these objectives, but you'd be surprised how often I'm asked to help with the strategy and this first step is unclear. So just start from there, and I guarantee you're more likely to get something useful out of this complex process. So there you have it, in plain English. If you have an IT question you want answered, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a message. I just might answer it on the show. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave me a review. To all of you executives with the cause, the world is definitely a better place because of you. Thank you for what you and your teams do every day.